Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Your Word and Your Spirit who guides us into all truth, and we pray that, that He would be here working in our midst, teaching us this glorious truth of the millennium. So open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word, and may our hearts be ready to receive the Word of God. May it take root and bear fruit in our lives. May we not just hear these truths and be amazed by them, but may we be doers of Your Word. May this belief in this truth have a, a great effect upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you wished for utopia? You know what utopia is, right? I, I hope you understand that. Utopia just describes a fictional island society. The word actually itself uh, means no place. And it's often used to just to describe a non-existent society. But what I want you to do is imagine a real society. Just imagine a real world, not a no-place utopia, but a real world that's actually dominated by righteousness, justice, goodness, and peace. Imagine a world where no court ever renders an unjust verdict, where everybody is actually treated fairly. Imagine a world where what is true and right actually marks every aspect of life and society. Imagine a world where there is complete and permanent peace. There's no ISIS. There's no civil wars. There's no abortion. There's none of that sort of stuff going on. Imagine a world like that where joy abounds, good health prevails, and so much so that the people live well over a hundred years old. Imagine a world where the curse of sin is removed, where the environment itself, oh, the greenies will love this, but the environment itself is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, where peace reigns even amongst the animal kingdom. <laughs> so much so, the Bible says the wolf will actually dwell with lambs without eating them, and the lion and the calf will dwell together. Imagine a world ruled by a perfect ruler. What I've just described for you, my friends, is what is called the millennium. Sadly, in Christendom, we are not united on this particular issue, as the screen shows you. There are, there are three main views, and by the way, there's other views. These are the three main ones. Let me quickly explain this, and then we'll actually get into the text. Here's the three main views. There's premillennialism. And then I'll explain the difference of these uh, in a moment and what is actually the same about these. But in premillennialism, notice Christ's second coming is before the thousand-year earthly reign. Whereas in postmillennialism, Jesus returns after this literal thousand years of peace and gospel growth on the earth to, to bring in what is called the final judgment. That's that hammer coming down there. That's the final judgment. 
Whereas with amillennialism, the letter A just means there's no millennium, not a literal millennium, where Jesus is, in this, in this situation, he's reigning in heaven with deceased believers for this symbolic period. And eventually he will come and bring in final judgment. What I want you to notice is not just the differences, but did you notice what actually Christians agree on? I have many brothers and sisters who disagree with me vehemently on this particular issue. And I love them dearly. (laughs) But we disagree. But what I do want you to notice is, uh, well, first of all, I hope you recognize this is a non-essential. So remember, in the essentials there must be unity, in non-essentials there can be diversity in all things love. So this is this your view on this is not going to determine whether or not you get to heaven. So we need to love our brothers and sisters who disagree with us. There is a lot of agreement. This is one of the things I want to show you. First of all, notice we all agree about Jesus' first coming. Jesus came the first time. And we all agree that Jesus is coming back again in his second coming. And we also all agree in a final judgment. So if you look at the, the various views there, you'll, you'll see they do believe in those things. So we're united on the gospel, but we disagree about the nature and the timing of the millennium. Some of you might be wondering, why is there so much disagreement on this particular issue? Well, ultimately, it goes back to your hermeneutic, and what what often determines your hermeneutic is your presuppositions. So if you come to the Bible with a literal hermeneutic and the right presuppositions, even the amillennialist, I can give you many quotes from amillennialists that say, if you have a literal hermeneutic, you will come to the premillennial position. Obviously, that's the one I hold to. So let me help kind of clear up some of the confusion. I think if, if we understand the Old Testament covenants, these promises that God made, then that would clear up a lot of the confusion on this. So let's just jump right in and look at what is the, the, the purpose of the millennium. So we're going to look at the Old Testament covenants, and then we'll look at Revelation to understand this. So God's purpose in the millenniums, actually to fulfill his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. In the Old Testament, God made promises. New Testament, we see God fulfilling and keeping those promises. And there's three particular covenants in particular I'm going to focus in, zoom in on. The Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant, quickly, before we get to Revelation. So in the Abrahamic covenant, of course, that was to Abraham and his seed being Israel, God promised Abraham, two basic things. I'll put them on here on the screen for you. So notice, God promised Abraham that his seed, who of course is Israel, would become a mighty nation. Number two. Boy, there's so much we could say. Sorry, we're going to just have, this is going to be a fly-through so quick, it's, it's ridiculous. But number two is that Israel would someday own the land of Palestine forever. Now, what I want you to notice about those two promises is they have not been fulfilled yet. So either God is not a promise-keeping God, or 
There is a time yet in the future he's going to do that. I hope you believe God keeps his promises. So let's just read Genesis 12. We'll see the Abrahamic covenant here. And I've thrown in verse 7 at the end, which is helpful. So here we go. Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring I will give this land. By the way, that promise was repeated in other chapters of Genesis. So, notice, a mighty nation and the land forever. The Palestine land forever. God will keep that covenant during the millennium. A second covenant that God made is called the Davidic covenant. Of course, that was for David. And God promised three things. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 7. But he promised, number one, that, that from David would come an everlasting throne. Of course, that never happened during David's life. Number two, from David would come an everlasting kingdom. And three, from David would come an everlasting king. So notice there's a throne, a kingdom, and a king. And so those, those promises, again, have not been fulfilled, but they will be. They're going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I want you to see, even, even the New Testament talks about this in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. It says, Behold, it's talking about Jesus uh, as, as uh, the angel or the, the, is talking to Mary. He says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. My friends, that has not been fulfilled yet. But it will in the millennium. The third and very important covenant is the new covenant. And God promised three things. You can read this in, well, we'll read it together in Jeremiah 31. But notice as we read that, first of all, that, that God would forgive Israel's sins. Two, God would give Israel a new heart. And three, that God would use Israel to reach and teach the Gentiles. So again, there's the, these promises have not been fulfilled yet, ultimately fulfilled yet. So let's read here together. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So three important covenants or promises that 
Notice God made with some individuals, but also the nation of Israel. Have not ultimately been fulfilled yet, but will be fulfilled in Jesus during the millennium. So with that as kind of a foundation, as we build here toward the end of the Bible, let that kind of guide you and and let that help your hermeneutic as we come to this controversial passage here in Revelation chapter 20. So let's read Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then... I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended." After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. We'll stop there for the moment. Let me just point out a few of the characteristics of the millennium. So we're just going to fly through these, and then I want to bring in some other passages at the end that also highlight some very important characteristics of the millennium. Number one, verses one through three here tell us that Satan is going to be imprisoned for 1,000 years. So I I love this truth, because the first matter for King Jesus' attention when he comes back is he's going to set up his kingdom, but, but to do that properly, he's going to imprison the chief rebel. Who, by the way, notice he's described as a dragon. And you don't have to guess who the dragon is. We don't need to spiritualize or allegorize this passage because the text clearly tells us who is the dragon. He, it just says he is that ancient serpent from Genesis chapter 3. He is the devil or Satan. Now, a lot of people wonder, well, when is this event going to take place? So, let me draw your attention to the very first words of Revelation chapter 20. Because as John's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he keeps using this phrase throughout the book that shows you a chronological progression, as I'll show you in this diagram here, this chronological progression going all the way through the book of Revelation from the church age from about 95 A.D., that's Revelation chapters 2 and 3. John's writing around 95 A.D. And then you'll see that sometime ending the church age, there will be a rapture of the believers to heaven. That's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
And then Revelation chapter 6 through 19 gives the tribulation period. So if you read Revelation chronologically and literally, this, this, is, this is what you're going to come up with. And so at the end of that tribulation, Christ's second coming. And so this is the time period, chronologically speaking. This is what we're talking about here. So as Revelation frequently does, it uses that phrase, then I saw. Then I saw. It's indicating a chronological progression. So after Christ's second coming, Revelation chapter 19, John then sees this, the millennium. So chapter 20 is Messiah's kingdom on the earth. So the location of this passage here and the flow of the book is consistent, not with an amillennial view or a postmillennial view, but it's consistent with a premillennial view. So I hope you can see that there. So after the tribulation, Christ returns. That's the end of chapter 19. Then chapter 20, he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. So the millennium is going to be followed, as you can see there, Revelation 21 and 22. It's followed by the new heavens, the new earth, and what we call the eternal state. So the millennium, notice key here, is coming after Christ's second coming, but it's before the eternal state. That's Revelation 21 and 22. The other thing you need to take note of here is Several times the Bible says that this time period is 1,000 years. Now, I know there's some people who spiritualize that, but notice the length of this period is consistently called 1,000 years. During this time, Satan's going to be bound. And by the way, Satan's binding possesses a serious difficulty for the other main views, whether you're a postmillennialist or an amillennialist. The amillennialists argue that Satan is already bound. And for those of us who are believers, we experience satanic, demonic attack. Right? We, we recognize that Satan is not bound. He is a, as someone wrote a book, I think it was Lindsay wrote a book called it, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, isn't he? We see the effects of his evilness. And so many postmillennialists also believe that Satan is presently bound. Sorry. However, as we look at the text, the Bible's description of Satan's activity in this present age just makes it, for, at least for me, impossible to believe Satan has already been bound. But during the millennium, he will be. It says so. And then in verse 3, we see at the end of the millennium, after the end of this thousand years, notice verse 3 says Satan is going to be released so that God can put a permanent end to sin and this chief rebel. And, and he needs to do that because Revelation 21 and 22 talk about him establishing a new heaven and a new earth. So we've got to get rid of Satan in order to do that. And so all who survive the tribulation and and those who enter into the kingdom, of course, will be believers. However, there's going to be, during the millennium, there's going to be glorified saints, and there will be saints who are still in their earthly bodies. So those who actually survive the tribulation will enter into the millennium in their physical bodies. 
And so we, we see at the end here in verse 3 that there's going to be a rebellion against King Jesus. So even though they, they outwardly bow the knee to King Jesus, inwardly they have never put their faith in King Jesus. So they will be the rebels who join Satan here at the end of the millennium. So think about that. Despite the fact that there's a world of peace and righteousness, you have the perfect ruler who is there in person, many of these descendants will refuse to believe in Jesus. And Satan's going to gather those unbelievers for one last stand against Jesus. It's going to be futile, a futile rebellion. It's going to be dealt with quickly, decisively. Uh, King Jesus is going to crush them. And so then if you read the end of Revelation 20, there will be this great white throne judgment for the unbelievers. And then we see in verses 4 to 6 that the saints are going to reign with King Jesus. So yes, it's true that the saints will reign. So that's going to be a part of the different distribution, by the way, of of the rewards. So what you do in your body here on earth matters. Not everybody's going to be on equal standing in heaven. So the supreme ruler in, in the kingdom, of course, is Jesus, it says. He alone, the Bible says, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Yet he has graciously promised here that the saints, the, the Christians, will reign with him. Notice here that the first thing that John saw in this vision of about the saints anyway, it says he saw thrones. Verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So that, that shows us that the saints, the Christians in the millennium, are having authority. And so because the saints are here, they're the ones actually sitting on those thrones. It also says that they're going to somehow enforce God's will and, and judge various disputes. God is, if you will, He's distributing His authority. Notice in verse 4 why the tribulation saints were executed. This is not a time period that's going to be a wonderful, glorious time, but there will be many saved ones during this time. But there are also going to be many executions there's four reasons the text says why the tribulation saints were executed. Number one, because of their testimony of Jesus. They were not ashamed of Jesus. They were willing to be witnesses for Him. And number two, because they faithfully proclaimed the Word of God. The Antichrist won't like that. Because he wants the glory. And number three, because they had not worshipped the Antichrist or His image. See, behind the Antichrist, of course, the Bible says, is the dragon, Satan. He's the one empowering him. Of course, Satan is quite happy for all glory to be diverted from God to him. Anything that's diverted away from God, he's quite happy with that. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. And, and so the fourth reason mentioned here is, is if they did not receive the mark of the Antichrist, then they will die. So it's going to be a difficult time. But there is a glorious future for these people. And so because the tribulation saints 
are really evidencing true salvation. They're going to come to life. Death is not the end. And they're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then John goes on to add a a parenthetical footnote, if you will, about the rest of the dead in verse 5. Who are they? Well, these are the bodies of the unbelievers of all the ages who will not be resurrected until verses 12 and three or 13. And they're going to be resurrected for the judgment. We call it, the Bible calls it the great white throne judgment. Verse 5 also mentions the first resurrection. Now there's some confusion around that. So you say, well, whoa, what is that? The first resurrection. Well, Scripture teaches two kinds of resurrections. Several different verses in the Bible talk about Uh, the resurrection of life or the resurrection of the condemnation. Those aren't the same thing. So it includes here only the redeemed of the church age. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about that. Uh, But it also includes the Old Testament saints, and verse 4 mentions the tribulation saints. So they're going to enter into the kingdom in resurrected bodies, living with believers who have survived the tribulation i know that that might seem a little strange to some people they have a hard time getting their head around that how can glorified people exist side by side with saved people still in physical bodies i don't know the bible doesn't tell us a lot about that okay but it just tells us that's the way it is but there's a second kind of resurrection it's going to be the resurrection of the unconverted the unsaved, they're going to receive here, it says, their final bodies that's actually suited for torment in the lake of fire. So that's, if you read on, you'll find that there about the great white throne judgment. So that's why there's two resurrections. You have the, the resurrection of, of life and the resurrection of the condemnation. Resurrection for the believers and resurrection for the saved, or the, the unsaved, sorry. But I love verse 6 because it just starts with a beautiful word, blessed. Why are these people blessed? Well, those who die in the Lord, the Bible says, are blessed. They have privileges and they enter into His kingdom. And notice the text says three reasons why they're blessed. Number one, the second death has no power over them. It has no power. By the way, second death referring to an eternal death in the lake of fire so praise god jesus has dealt with that second death for all believers and number two it says they're going to be priests of god in christ wow i I can't say exactly what that's going to look like but praise god we we get to minister with alongside of christ somehow some way and they're going to reign these saints are going to reign with christ for one thousand years So praise God, we're delivered from this second death. And by the way, the first death, when the Bible talks about that, that's referring to a spiritual and physical death. Some experience that, some may not. And so the second is something that's eternal in the lake of fire. And it's it's a final, eternal hell. Verse 14 talks about this. Revelation 20, it says, in verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
So that is not for believers. That's for the unbelievers. And they're the only ones, by the way, resurrected here for the great white throne judgment. There's a third characteristic of the millennium in verse 7. It's that Satan returns. Satan will return. So yes, he is bound for a thousand years, but he's released at the end. And he's, he's loose to bring leadership to these rebels who have been born during the millennium. Outwardly, they're conforming to, to King Jesus' rulership. But inwardly, they've never believed. And so, though the initial inhabitants of the millennium kingdom are all saved, redeemed people, they still possess a sinful nature. And so, they're going to have children, and then their children also have to put their faith in Christ. And so, as all parents have done ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, they're going to pass that sin nature on to their children. And so each successive generation has to make up its mind of who are they going to serve. Where is their faith and belief lie? So many will come to faith in Christ. So despite the utopian conditions of the millennium, notice people are going to love their sin and still reject Jesus Christ. By the way, what does that tell you? You and I, and no one, in fact, can blame our society and our environment. We cannot blame shift. We have a perfect environment, perfect society, perfect ruler, but yet inwardly they're still rebelling. So they they can't blame the environment. It just shows the sad reality of our human depravity. It's not not a beautiful picture of what's going on inside us. The fourth characteristic of the millennium is that people will revolt. They will. Verses 8 and 9 say so. So Satan's released. And do you think he's going to be a happy camper after being bound for a thousand years? He's going to be furious. He knows his time is short. Verse 8 says he's going to come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. That's just an expression that's just talking about the four corners of the earth. In other words, all points of the compass, north, south, east, west, he's going to badly influence all of them. In other words, the rebels are going to come from all over the earth to Jerusalem, but it's not really going to be a battle. Again, it's just going to be an execution. They're coming for their execution. They're coming for their judgment. And so as these rebel forces are are, are moving in for the attack, the Bible says God's going to send down fire from heaven to totally exterminate them. The fifth characteristic of the millennium is that Satan will be doomed for all eternity in the lake of fire. That's what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So my friends, here's the good news. He doesn't get away. He doesn't get away with his sin either. He doesn't get away with his rebellion. In fact, it says he's going to spend all eternity in the lake of fire along with the demons along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Notice 
by the way, also, the beast and the false prophet are still alive. They have not been destroyed. They're still there. They're still experiencing this torment. This is not a, this is not a total destruction. They have been pre- their bodies have been prepared for this place. Also notice that Satan is not in control. He doesn't wear a red suit with a nice little tail and a pitchfork and poking people and telling his demons to stoke the fires hotter and tormenting all the unbelievers. He's not in charge. He's, he's just one of the tormented. So Satan's going to be doomed for all eternity here to the lake of fire. That is his final judgment, and he will be there as we live through on through the eternal state. Now, let me give you some other characteristics of the millennium that all throughout the scripture you'll see the millennium. Now, a lot of people get confused about this, so let me just give you a little helpful hermeneutic. You will see the Old Testament prophets talk a lot about the millennium, and you say, well, it's confusing. Well, guess what? It was confusing to them. Right? They, they, as they prophesied and wrote the Old Testament scriptures, they could not necessarily tell the difference between Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming, the millennium, and whatever else they were writing about. They couldn't tell. It's kind of like looking at mountains off in the distance. You can't, you can't necessarily tell where the valleys are. You can see some mountains off in the distance, and that's the way the Old Testament prophets were. So you might be wondering, why, are, why am I confused when I read, say, Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah? Well, that, that's one of the reasons. They're just writing what God told them, right? They couldn't distinguish between all the time periods. So we're going to look at some of these, and, and the, the context will help us to understand this. But, but a sixth characteristic is this, that Christ's reign is characterized by righteousness. Now, Isaiah is, is very helpful in telling us a lot about the millennium, so I've, I've drawn several from him. Look at this one here. For sake of time, we'll just look at him on the screen. Isaiah 11, verse 4 says that with righteousness, he, that's Christ, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Over and over again, the Old Testament prophets talk about righteousness. That's a main characteristic of King Jesus' reign. He is righteousness, literally. A seventh characteristic of the millennium is that peace will come even to the animal kingdom. Now, before we read this, we don't see this at the moment, do we? Now, it was in the beginning, you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God made everything perfect. In fact, He said it was very good. So the dinosaurs weren't going around eating Adam and Eve. Lions weren't eating calves. Wolves were not eating lambs. In fact, the Bible says they were all vegetarians. What changed? Genesis 3 changed everything, didn't it? And we still live in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind into sin. This whole earth is cursed. And so Romans 8 says we are longing for the earth to be released from this curse. Even the earth itself is groaning under the curse. 
Even the animal kingdom is affected by this. But guess what? When King Jesus comes, that's going to change. Because look at this. This is beautiful. Isaiah 11 says, verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And notice, the animal kingdom is going to revert back. God's going to change it back to Genesis 1. They're all going to turn back to be vegetarians. So we have the curse being lifted. And as a result of the curse being lifted, guess what? The animals become plant eaters, just as they were in the original creation. The eighth characteristic of the millennium is that the reversal of this curse will then enable the the earth itself to be very productive. And so after the fall of mankind into sin, we know, we, we read the curses that God said to Adam and Eve and Satan. One of those was that the ground itself would be cursed. And so Adam would then have to work by the sweat of his brow. In other words, he'd have to toil with hard work because the ground is now having thorns and thistles. And so much of the present earth at the moment is unproductive. Much of it's desert. You want to know what that's like? Just talk to my (laughs) in-laws. A lot of it's desert. and They require irrigation in order for the dry, hot ground to produce much of anything. And so during the millennium, it's going to change. It's going to be characterized by abundance of water. The dry areas are then going to blossom as the rose. Those of you who had roses, you know they require some water. Isaiah talks about this, chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Verse 7 says, The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. We see it reverting back to Garden of Eden type conditions. Ninth characteristic of the millennium is that the humans will enjoy long life. How is that even possible? Well, King Jesus, you know, is the great physician. He's the great healer. If the curse of sin is reversed, well, that's surely going to have an effect on our bodies, won't it? Because even our very bodies are cursed by sin, and that's going to result in very long lifespans, which again, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20 talks about this, where it says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man, notice, a young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So in the millennial kingdom, 
A sinful person here might die at age 100. That's a sinful person. But notice the Bible is considering that person to be yet a youth. So having died an untimely death, apparently, it's going to be assumed here that God has taken his life because of his sin, it says. And so the curse is going to be reversed, it's going to to be removed, and then we're going to enter into, eventually, the eternal state. So the last one I just want to mention quickly here, I love this one. I'm kind of ending on a climax, in my opinion. Last characteristic of the millennium is there's going to be a universal worship of the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says the, the, the center of that worship is going again to be in Jerusalem. There, there's a special temple that Ezekiel talked about. But before we look at that, uh, let me just read Zechariah 14. By the way, let me encourage you to read all the chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. Zechariah chapter 14. But look at this one verse. Verse 16 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. I love it. Because at the moment, that just doesn't happen. It never has. But in the, in the millennium, it will. And so if you, if you want to... Read some interesting reading. Ezekiel chapters 40 to 46 tell us all about the Jerusalem temple or the millennial temple and and what all goes on there. It it even gives dimensions and the sacrifices and so forth. A lot of people are confused by that. So I've given you little diagrams here on the the screen. It might be helpful. There's... uh, there's, there's Ezekiel's temple, or the millennial temple. You say, well, we've had many different temples in Jerusalem over the years. That's true, but we've never had this one. Not yet. And one of the reasons I know that is because it's never been built. The, the dimensions are very clear in the Bible. In fact, it's way bigger than any of the other temples that have been built. But notice there's, uh, there's all kinds of... Right kind of in the middle there, there's the, the, the temple proper. And he, uh, Zechariah talks about a stream coming from the temple. That's why there's that blue strip that actually goes right out of the temple. And, and, and Zechariah 14 talks about how God's going to even change the topography. He's going to split the Mount of Olives in half so that the, the water from, from God's temple will flow through the Mount of Olives and eventually make its way eastward out into the wilderness, to the sea eventually. God's going to change a lot of things. Pretty cool stuff goes on there. But you say, well, how big is this? Well, the, the next screen shows you just how big it is. So on the left there is actually the Millennial Temple, or Ezekiel's Temple, according to his dimensions. And so you'll see that... Uh, Little Solomon's temple right here on that part is maybe what? Maybe a tenth. <laughs> Solomon's temple is only maybe a tenth of Ezekiel's temple. So that, that was an amazing structure. Big, beautiful for its time, but small compared to the millennial temple. So the point is, my friends, it's, it hasn't been built yet, but it will be during the millennium.
But all, what, what's the point of all that? It's the worship of King Jesus. So every year, people are going to come to Jerusalem. Notice Zechariah 14 says, To worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Praise God. Every knee will bow before King Jesus. Every knee will confess Him to be Lord. That has not happened yet, but it will. It will. It's a glorious time, and we we ought to look forward to this. Praise God for it. So here's my proposition. How should we think about this? Here's the proposition. That God wants you to believe that He rules over the kingdoms of men and will accomplish His sovereign purposes regardless of human or demonic opposition. Regardless of Antichrist, regardless of Satan and the devil and that serpent of old, the dragon and their evil work that they're trying to accomplish, God will still accomplish His purposes. He is unstoppable. May this truth bring you great hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may we be encouraged by this. May we be comforted. May it bring us hope. May it give us resolve in this age that just seems to be out of control where sometimes we wonder, have you abandoned us? Has this earth just gone to the madhouse? In many ways it has, but we, may we look forward to a future when every knee will bow to King Jesus and every knee will confess Him to be Lord. May we recognize that You are the sovereign ruler over this earth and all the kingdoms and the, the rulers of this world and they're not going to get away with it. Satan's not going to get away with it. One day he's going to get justice. May we be encouraged by that as well. May we believe your covenants and your promises. May we believe you to be a covenant-keeping God who has made lots of promises. And as you have kept many of them in your Christ's first coming, we look for them to be kept in the future, in Christ's second coming, in the millennium, and in the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal state. May we believe. By your grace, we, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.